0: I was, uh, oh, hi, I'm Steve. Good to see you. I was standing on on that wall, and the sound is really bad over there. So, all I could see was Matt pointing at me and laughing, and I saw all you guys looking at me. So, I know something was said. (laughs) I don't know what it is. I bet if you're new here, I bet you're pretty surprised that Matt said he was a grandfather. Um, He's actually 73 years old. (laughs) You look so good, Matt. You look so good. Uh, Okay, today we are reading from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And as he went out, not knowing where he was going... A homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for the last year, we have been reading through the Bible together as a congregation. And each Sunday, we take a moment to pause and consider one of the passages that we read together this week. And so that brings us today to Hebrews chapter 11. And to be frank, I'm not sure that there is a more pressing message that we need to hear this morning in the context of what has been going on in our nation for the last couple of years. And the society outside of these walls and, and sadly inside these walls and here and in, in all of our churches protestant evangelicals have become embroiled in american politics and i don't think i need to present a lot of evidence to you to prove that i mean it's gotten ugly Evangelicals are fighting about mask mandates. Evangelicals are fighting about critical race theory being taught in schools. Evangelicals are fighting about presidential elections. And the sad truth is that that kind of fighting has divided Christians inside the church. Some are leaving churches because of these issues. Some have been alienated from their families because of these issues. And each side has become so deeply convinced that their position is right that there seems little hope of reconciliation. So today, the author of Hebrews has a word for us. And if we don't listen to that word The church of Jesus Christ will lose all hope of providing any witness to the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in this world. That's what he left us here to do. He said before he departed, you, plural, y'all, shall be my witnesses And I say this without equivocation. Our foolish bickering has cost us almost all of the cultural capital that we have to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we need to repent and remember the gospel. So, The summary of our text today is as follows. Those who confess that they are strangers on the earth are citizens of the city of God. In order to explore this text, let's look uh, look at it under two headings. Number one, citizenship in the city of God. And then number two, rival citizenships. to to those who are citizens of the city of God. So number one, the citizenship of the city of God. Now, if you read Hebrews with us this week, you'll recall that the theme of Hebrews 11 is faith. The author paints this magnificent picture of faith running like a golden thread through all of the major figures of the Old Testament up to the moment that he is writing this letter. It is faith which pleases God, he says, not Works And all these people that are listed in this uh, chapter were commended for their faith. And then in verse 8, he gets to Abraham, and he says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So God called Abraham out of his homeland in Mesopotamia and set out, he set out into the promised land of Canaan. And because Abraham believed God's promise and took God at his word, He packed up his family, and he left behind everything that he knew. And why did he do such a thing? The simple answer is because God told him to. But there's even more to it than that, and we see that in the next verse, verse 10. For, this is going to tell us why, for he Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So not only did Abraham believe the promise of God to him, that he and his wife's old bodies would produce descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore, It says that Abraham and Sarah's motivation for leaving their homeland behind is that they were seeking another homeland. Are we following? They're seeking another homeland. And you would think that the identity of that homeland would be obvious, right? God calls them to the promised land, to Canaan. So they set out seeking another homeland. But that's not what this says. The author here claims that Abraham left his home in Ur not merely to settle on another patch of dirt like he left, but because he longed for an even better home than the promised land, namely the heavenly city whose builder and architect is God. Abraham set out for the city of God, not the city of earth. And all of that sets the stage for the main part of the argument that begins in verse 13. It says this. These all died in faith. What does that mean, died in faith? Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, all of them died in faith. And what does that mean? It means they left their home in order to find a new homeland, but despite the fact that they did settle on that patch of dirt, the promised land, Canaan, they died without ever reaching their true home. It was the city of God that they sought. Abraham, by faith, he tells us saw, saw the city of God and greeted it from afar. But while he was alive, he never entered it. But Abraham didn't just have faith that God would eventually bring him into the promised city whose builder and architect is God. He acknowledged, like that's, that's for one thing, but he also acknowledged that he was a stranger and an exile on the earth. Now, if you go to the commentaries on this verse and consult the people who spend their whole lives interpreting the Greek language, you'll see that this word acknowledged is a pretty weak translation for the word, for the Greek word that sits behind it. To say that Abraham. Acknowledged that he was a stranger and an exile on the earth makes it kind of sound like he sort of like shrugged his shoulders and was like, eh, I, I acknowledge it. But the word here is incredibly important. So let me tell you that almost all scholars universally agree the translation here should be: He confessed. That's the word. He confessed. That he was a stranger and an exile on the earth. And you're thinking, so what? You just built that all up and confessed. Okay, so it's fair. All right, it doesn't seem that much different, but consider what confession means in the scriptures. Already in this letter, the author has used the same Greek word for confess in chapter 4 to talk about a Christian's confession of Jesus Christ as our high priest. And then in chapter 10, he uses the same word to talk about our confession, that the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, by that blood, we are free to draw near to God. That is our confession. Remember that John the Baptist confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul gave his confession to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Acts 24. So confession in the biblical sense is one of the most fundamental acts we perform as Christians in this world. And so look what Abraham did. He confessed that he was a stranger and an exile on the earth. He didn't just acknowledge it, he confessed it. He said, I believe in the promises of God to create a great nation out of me. And I believe that I'm a stranger and an exile on the earth. Abraham's exiled status on the earth was not ancillary to his confession of faith. It was central. Despite the fact that he settled in Canaan with his family, the very promised land of God, he stood and confessed, this is not my home. I don't belong here. I wait for the city of God. And what is the result of that faithful conviction? Well, we see it in verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now, we have to read this very carefully. For people who confess that they are strangers and exiles in this world... They make it clear that they are seeking a home elsewhere. But my question is this, to whom are they making this clear? Who is is listening to this confession? Well, you've got to think about the context of this chapter. The author has presented all these various people and commended them for their faith. So their confessions and their convictions have made it clear to us who read about them, who hear them proclaimed. Their comportment in life makes clear to us in the watching world that this is not their home. Their lives are in this way witnesses to the watching world that they long for a better city and a home which they will have died, when they have died, they will only have seen from afar and greeted by faith and the homeland that Abraham sought just to be clear was not the home he left in Mesopotamia right verse 15 just in case you were confused if they had been thinking about that land from which they had gone out Mesopotamia Ur, they would have had opportunity to return but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They didn't want to return to Ur of Mesopotamia. Their hearts ached for a better homeland, the heavenly city of God, and they confessed that their true home was beyond this world, and they lived with that until the dying day in faith. And if that wasn't magnificent enough, we end here. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God is not ashamed to be called their God. He promised them a city beyond this world. They believed and confessed that this world was not their home. They longed ached for the city of God and since their desires aligned with their faith and the promises of God God is not ashamed to be called their God in fact God was called the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he says yes oh, I am not ashamed of that What greater commendation could a child of God long for than this? To live our lives by faith, yes, full of imperfections like Abraham, and yet for God to look upon our lives and say, I am not ashamed to be called your God. It would be a joy beyond reckoning. And in this context of this chapter, how do we receive such a commendation? by faith in his promises. And specifically in the context that we've just been considering by confessing that we are strangers and exiles on the earth and that we await our true home in the city of God. And if you want a word to sum up all of this, it comes down to this, citizenship. Paul says it beautifully in Philippians chapter 3. He says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me not be unclear. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are strangers and exiles here on the earth, and that is not tangential to our confession of Christ. It is central. And when the world hears our confession and sees the manner into which we live that confession, they will have no choice but but to conclude about us that we are seeking a better homeland, the city whose builder and architect is God. Now, let's shift and talk about rival citizenships here on Earth and their potential dangers. So with those principles established, let me say this as plain as I can. Christians, the United States of America is not your home. Let that sink in. Your citizenship is in heaven, in the city of God, which he has prepared for you, in the everlasting kingdom of of God, in which your joy shall overflow. The United States is not your home. And the reason I say that is because our behavior in the public square in the last two years has told a very different story to those who watch. In the face of many rapid and disorienting cultural shifts from the national conversation on racism after the death of George Floyd to vaccines, mask mandates during the COVID pandemic, our behavior on the whole, has told the world, America is our home. And we will fight to the death for it, and whatever collateral damage we leave in our wake is worth it. If only we can remake this nation into our image. Because after all, We have rights. I'll get to that. But this is not the confession of people who are strangers and exiles on the earth. This is not the confession of people who confess that they seek the city of God beyond this world. This is the confession of a people who... i saying here am i saying that we just roll over and not fight for what we think is best in this nation no that's not what i'm saying that's not at all what i'm saying after all i mean jesus did turn over tables in the temple yes he came to make a statement with that act but do you know what probably happened right after jesus left the temple he scatters all the coins turns over the tables. This is my father's house. This is a house of prayer. And you know what they probably did? Picked it all up, kept going. We must fight for what is good and right and true. Yes, but we must not do it as those who are grasping at power. We must fight as those who are not surprised if we lose and seek no reprisal when we do. Why? Because our confession is this. America is not our home. We are strangers and exiles here on the earth, and it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us hope beyond what any nation could ever offer us. Okay, second... Second place I think this confession helps us learn how to repent is how we claim our rights. Just a couple of days ago, in uh, Union University, it's a Christian college in Jackson, Tennessee, they held a conference called America's Revival. At that conference, a pastor named Greg Locke preached passionately against mask mandates in churches. And to be clear, I'm not making commentary on that, but this is what he was preaching about. And he said the following without blushing, quote, We so believe in our First Amendment right to gather that if you show up, he's speaking to the government, if you show up and you impede our First Amendment right to worship, we are going to meet you at the door with our Second Amendment rights. I'd like to tell you that the people listening in the crowd were aghast at such a statement, but they rose to their feet and they cheered and they clapped and they shouted. Now, in light of everything I just said in the last point, I'm not even going to comment on how blatantly anti-biblical and anti-Christian that comment is. But Locke's statement is characteristic of a growing outcry from evangelicals in the last 18 months that our rights are being infringed. And in some cases, maybe they're right, some cases maybe they're right. It's not my point. But there's this outcry that our rights are being infringed. And we are so committed to our civil liberties that if you try to trample them, we're going to shoot you. <sighs> but even if it doesn't get that extreme, our commitment to our rights has propelled us into the public square with bitterness on our lips and mockery in our words. And before I get on, before I go on, let me just let me make something clear. I am an American citizen. Okay? I'm a teacher of American history, U.S. government. I know my way around the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And I cherish every single liberty that belongs to me as an American. And when you study world history it really becomes clear what an astonishing thing it is for us to have these rights guaranteed. Like, for anyone who has spent time reading about Mao's China or Stalin's Russia, you almost have no choice but to fall on your knees and thank God that we have these liberties. Let me be plain about that. Let me be clear. But let me be equally clear about this. Our rights... Are not absolute. Our rights are not absolute. We are strangers and exiles in this land. And here's where we return to Abraham, uh, whom Hebrews puts out as a paradigm for the stranger and the exile. Listen to this. After he settled in Canaan, he's living in tents for a long time with his family. His wife Sarah died. But since he lived in that land as a sojourner, as a stranger in an exile, he had no land rights, which entitled him to bury her properly. And so in Genesis 24, he gains an audience with the ruler of the province, and that ruler grants Abraham the, the proper land to bury his wife. Now remember, Abraham was living. Like, where that happened... He was living in the promised land, that land that God had said, this belongs to you and your family. But even though that was true, Abraham could not claim natural or civil rights while he was there. Why? Because he was a sojourner and a stranger and exile on the earth. He knew that his true home was beyond this land in the city of God. And if our confession is that we are strangers and exiles here on the earth, then we must also hold our rights loosely. But somebody's gonna object here, I know it. Somebody's gonna object and say, wait a minute, but Paul claimed his rights as a Roman citizen, did he not? Shouldn't we claim our rights too? Sure. But remember how Paul did it? Paul claimed his rights, not absolutely, but as a means to proclaim the gospel. He didn't claim his rights in order to return Listen, he did not return, he did not claim his rights in order to return Roman politics to some forgotten golden age where people like him had influence. He claimed his rights when the gospel was at stake. And he did it on two occasions in the book of Acts. The first time, listen to this. The first time, he was arrested, put in in chains, and then they stretched him out to flog him. They reared back and he said, Wait a minute, I am a Roman citizen. Is this how you treat somebody who's a citizen to flog him without a trial? And so they let him go and he kept preaching but the second time this is interesting listen the second time the authorities arrested him and his company no word from paul they beat him and the rest of the people severely no word about rights threw them in jail bleeding and concussed no word about rights And made them spend the night in that condition. It was only the next morning when the jailer came to open the jail and let them go that Paul said, By the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And they were horrified because they knew that their actions against a citizen would bring reprisal against them. But why did Paul go through all of that suffering before claiming his rights to Roman citizenship? Why didn't he just claim those rights before they beat him and jailed him like they did the first time? It's because for Paul, his rights as a Roman citizen were not absolute. The man who wrote, our citizenship is in heaven, knew what he was about. He was about the gospel. And so despite the fact that I cherish my constitutional rights as we all should, we cannot hold on to them as if they bear scriptural authority. Over the last two years, Christians have entered the public square with rage and bitterness dripping from our lips and crying out for our rights. And when they've been threatened, when our rights have been threatened, some of us have gone so far as to threaten violence in retaliation. And what do you think that does to our witness? Remember this the vocation of the church of Jesus Christ is to witness to his death and resurrection. And if we don't do that, no one else will. There is no other entity on the face of planet Earth that exists to witness to the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ than his church. We are the only ones. There is no plan B. What will we do when the world has cast our voice aside because we have ceased witnessing to, the, to Christ's atoning death and resurrection and instead have taken up the gospel of America on our lips. I tell you what will happen. Maybe what already has happened. If Americans outside of the church hear the way that we speak, And they reject our Christian nationalism. They will also reject our Savior. Think of the stakes. And that will be on us. But it doesn't have to be that way. Brothers and sisters, let us repent of our bitter comportment in the public square. Let us repent of our obsession with making America into the city of God. Let us repent of holding on to our rights as though they were absolute. The well of forgiveness has not run dry. Christ's atoning blood springs eternal and we will find rest for our souls in the shelter of his cross. And then, only then, will we find the joy that is proper when we confess, confess that we are strangers and exiles on the earth. Then we will discover the peace that comes with looking beyond this world to the city in which our true citizenship lies, a city whose builder and architect is God. And then it will be said of us, God, is not ashamed to be called our God. As we do each week, we come now to the table. This is a table both of repentance and it is a taste of the meal that will be set before us in the coming city of God. And so, brothers and sisters, let us come both in repentance and rejoicing to this table. Let us pray. Father in heaven, it is only you who can grant the grace of repentance. It is only you who can give us eyes to see beyond this world into the heavenly city. Though we greet it from afar, we cherish it. So we ask, in the name of Jesus, grant us the kind of faith that walks as an exile here on earth. Yes, we fight against injustice. Yes, we fight for what is right and good and true. But Father, we do so in the image of Jesus Christ. So fill us with your spirit that the watching world comes to that conclusion about us in the name of Jesus. Amen. This meal is for you, my brothers and sisters, so come and welcome to Jesus Christ.